that happens or not. We come today to Joshua chapter 10. Pastor Rodney left off last week in verse 15, and we pick up our text in verse 16. This morning we have quite uh, a text to deal with, all the way from chapter 10, verse 16, to the end of chapter 12. And from from chapter 10 to the end of chapter 12, basically we have the account of the destruction of 31 of 33 kings of the land who were defeated by Israel under the leadership both of Moses and of Joshua. We won't be spending a whole lot of time. Don't worry, when when you see a big text like that, don't think that we're going to be here for a very long time. We're we're actually just going to highlight chapter 12. Chapter 12 is just given to listing those specific kings who were defeated. Now by the time we come to chapter 10 in the book of Joshua, we may be a bit spoiled in all that we have seen. Uh, Maybe our expectations in the book of Joshua are a bit tainted or a bit spoiled because we have seen quite the, the, the details of quite some amazing, miraculous interactions that God has had in the history of, of Israel. We've seen some amazing acts of God in this book so far. I mean, just think about it. We've seen the crossing of the River Jordan, the flooded River Jordan, and Israel, all of Israel, crossing over on dry ground. We've encountered a pre-incarnate glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself in Joshua chapter 5. We saw the miraculous defeat of Jericho simply by marching around the city. If that's not enough, last week we saw the miraculous intervention in that God threw down great hailstones from heaven against the Israelites' enemies, not to mention that He stopped the sun midday. He stopped the sun from going down. He extended one full day. But in our text this morning, things change drastically. Things change drastically because no longer do we read of the miraculous when we come to Joshua chapter 10 verse 16. We we don't see the account of what we would call the miracles, the miraculous things anymore. Instead, we just see this slow and steady progression of of Joshua obeying all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And that really seems quite unremarkable in light of everything that we had seen up to this point in the book of Joshua. What we see here is Joshua carefully obeying the Word of God. And quite honestly, when we come to that, we say that just doesn't have the same pizzazz to it. I mean, give us a little hailstone from heaven, you know? Give us some stopping the sun in mid in midday, give us some, some walls of the city falling down with no apparent reason other than the work of God. And that's how we often think about the Christian life. We often think about the Christian life in terms of the miraculous. We're looking for the pizzazz. We're looking for the spectacular. We're looking for the, you know, the buzz. We're looking for something that's amazing when instead the daily Christian life is just this slow Steady progression of obeying our Lord. You see that in this text, particularly in chapter 11, verse 12, verse 15, verse 20, verse 22. Joshua just obeying the word of the Lord. 
Now, our text this morning follows Joshua and the Israelite army both southward and then they turn northward in the promised land as the battle for the promised land continues. Though the account of these conquests is fairly brief as the narrative unfolds, I mean, it only really a few verses from chapter 10, verse 16 to the end of, of chapter 11, it's fairly brief as this narrative unfolds. But what really happens here is what you don't see is that it takes up about seven years of time. Seven years of time that Joshua waged war against these kings. Now this morning, as I said, we're not going to get into great detail. And what I want to do is call attention, call your attention this morning to two very important features of this story. Two very important features of the conquest, the southward conquest and the northward the, the northward conquest of the land of Canaan. Now, of course, there are many things that we can note in this text, as you can imagine. But we're just going to make note of these two features so that we can most carefully apply the text to our lives. So if we're successful today, you'll know a little bit about this text, primarily those two features, and you'll have a clear idea of the application that we can make in our own lives. So those two features that I'm going to call your attention to this morning are this. I want you to note, first of all, the destruction of the hard-hearted. The destruction of the hard-hearted And then secondly, we'll point out to you the diligence of Joshua. So just remember those two words, destruction and diligence. Begin in verse chapter 10, verse 16. These five kings fled. Now stop there. You say, "Uh uh-oh, we're really not going to get very far. Well, we may not, but just remember who this is talking about. Just remember what Pastor Rodney brought to us last week, those five kings that he had pointed out. Adonai Zedek and the kings that had joined him to fight against the Gibeonites. And of course, the Gibeonites had signed a covenant with Israel. Israel comes and decides to protect the Gibeonites against the attack of these five kings. And of course, uh, God fought on their behalf. Joshua and the Israelites, they fought and brought great, uh, a great battle to these kings. So these five kings, they were cowardly kings really, they fled and they hid themselves in the cave of Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Machedah. Now you notice there the, the, the emphasis on the fact that they're hiding. They're cowardly, they're hiding. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard, do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any one of the people of Israel. Israel. Now, just read that for a moment and let me say a few things. In chapters 10 and chapter 11, you're going to find a recurring phrase. In fact, nine different times you'll find a phrase that sound, that's similar to devoted to destruction. Chapter 10, verse 28, verse 35, verse 37, 
verse 39, verse 40, chapter 11, verse 1, verse 12, verse 20, and verse 22, you see somehow that phrase brought about, devoted to destruction. That would be a fair summary of what happens here in chapters 10 through 12. We have here the account of the destruction of 31 of the 33 kings that these city-states, of these city-states, scattered throughout the land of Canaan. Now it is clear that the people of Israel, as they're being led by Joshua, have been brought into the land that was promised to them by God, and they've been brought here in order to bring God's judgment of destruction on these people. In the text that we just read, we encounter the account of the death of five Amorite kings to whom we were introduced last week. Pastor Rodney brought our attention to those. They are cowardly kings, as I said. They fled in the midst of the heat of the battle. They fled to a cave. They're, they're hiding in this place called Makeda. They're hiding in a cave. They're fleeing for their own lives. Joshua was made aware of it. Instead of stopping there, instead of stopping the pursuit, he gives the instruction to close up those caves with large stones while the army continued on to pursue all of the enemies. Now, if I can condense what happens here, there was such a wiping out of these people that not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. They knew there was clearly something divine about what was happening with the people of Israel. It was a wholesale destruction. But our text expands a little bit more on this destruction by focusing our attention in verse 22 on these five cowardly kings who were locked hiding in a cave. Because when Joshua returns to the cave of Makeda, the, the, the kings are brought out. Look at verse 22. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, of Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and the king of uh, Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on their necks, uh, put put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they were, had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. The kings are brought out, laid under the feet of Joshua and the leaders of the army of Israel, and they are put to death. The very Joshua who was used to bring Israel into the promised land is the same Joshua who saw to it that Rahab and everyone in her house were saved, is the same Joshua who made a covenant with the Gibeonites, is the very same Joshua who struck these kings and put them to death death. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but at the end of verse 27, there's something very important. The writer is actually recording these things in close proximity with when they actually happened. 
In other words, he is writing, and this is important to remember, friends, he is writing for someone so that they could actually see these very large stones and by seeing these very large stones would immediately recall what happened to these kings who had sought to attack the Gibeonites. He wants them to remember this. Keep that in mind. Chapter 10 concludes with the account of the destruction of Libna, Lachish, Gazir, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. And it's summarized for us in this way. Look at chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, the, the desert area, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. That's the summary of chapter 10. Chapter 11 opens. That's sort of the summary of the southern... Uh, conquest. Chapter 11 opens with the summary of the northern conquest. You would think by now that things were getting a bit easier for the people of Israel, but that indeed is not the case. You would think by now that things would get a little bit easier for Joshua, but that indeed is not the case. Because by the time you come to chapter 11, you have this massive force amassed against Israel. Look at this. Verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. You get the picture. They, verse 4, came out with all their troops, and the writer wants us to know it was a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, but not only was it a massive army, it was a powerful army because we understand here for the first time that this army involved horses and chariots, akin to modern day tanks in, the, in this kind of warfare, right? This is a big deal, massive army. And I can just imagine Joshua, the people of Israel saying, can't we catch a break? You know, enough with the battles, enough with the fighting. It just keeps getting worse. By the time you get to the end of chapter 11, you find out that there's another problem because they also fought against the Anakim. That was the giant race, the very ones that made the spies so terrified to even enter the land of promise in the very first place. Yeah, it's not enough that it's a massive army. It's not enough that they have tank tanks. It's not enough that these people are giants. They're amassed all together. They have signed an accord together to fight against the people of Israel. 
it's, it's bad. It's terrifying. But what do we read? Let me read for you in verse 6 of chapter 11. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I wonder what Joshua's response was. Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Don't trust in chariots. Don't think that you're going to be able to take them over. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. And Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, uh, uh, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Helak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gideon. They took them all in battle. Verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron and Debir and Anab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none left of the Anakim. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, that's foreshadowing, only in Gaza, in Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So that's what happens. There is this destruction of the hard-hearted. Now you might say, well, why are we talking about this? Well, let me give you two reasons that we're talking about this destruction. Number one, this destruction is just. This destruction is just. I want you to see that this was a just destruction. In other words, it wasn't some kind of genocide. Rather, this was a righteous execution of justice. You should understand, friends, that these people were by and large very wicked people. And you can read about the wickedness of this people in the book of Leviticus chapter 18, as I spoke to you earlier in this study. 
God summarized it by saying that the land has become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 25. You see, the reality is all these people who were destroyed knew God. This was not an issue of whether or not these people knew that God existed. In fact, they knew Him. Paul tells us that everyone everywhere all the time knows that God exists, but the fact is they suppress the truth. Now, I want to show you something. I want you to go back with me, and I did this earlier in an earlier study. I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and I just want you to notice what God says here to uh, Abram. He says this in verse 14. Talking here about this, this nation that's going to be raised up. He says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, speaking of Egypt. As for you, you shall go to their fathers, your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They, meaning your descendants, shall come back here to this land of Canaan in the fourth generation for, here's the key phrase, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God was actually being patient with these Canaanite people. Yet instead of seeing that patience of God, they persisted in their wickedness, they persisted in their idolatry, they persisted in their moral perversion, they persisted in their rebellion. God waited, listen friends, God waited 400 years And they just piled up their iniquity and their sin before God. I don't know if you remember this or not. When when Pastor Rodney read to us last week in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. But here's what it said. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard... Chapter 10, verse 1, as soon as he heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, he heard what he did in Ai, and he heard what happened in Jericho. We read the same thing in chapter 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this. You see that? Even when these people see the people of God coming, And even though they knew clearly that God dried up the Red Sea and how they brought God's judgment on the wicked, how they heard about what God did in the river Jordan, they still resisted. You remember back in Joshua chapter 2? Rahab, the harlot, said this to the people of Israel. As soon as we heard it, speaking of what God was doing through the people of Israel... She said, our hearts melted and there, and, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, they knew that the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's the testimony of Rahab the prostitute. They knew exactly what Paul says in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that everyone knows all the time. Everyone, everywhere, all the time knows that God exists. Everyone, everywhere, all the time, knows the power of God, 
knows his sovereignty, knows his existence, and know that he is over them. All these people knew God. And they denied him. For centuries. This was a just destruction. These are not innocent people who have no knowledge. What we have here in Joshua chapters 10 and 11 is a contrast between Joshua, who is completely obeying the commands of God through Moses, and the people of the land who are completely denying the truth they know. This is a just destruction. They know God, and they refuse to repent. I told you a few weeks ago, this is exactly what's going to happen in the tribulation period in the future. Revelation chapter 16, verse 11. You know, after, after detailing this horrible wrath that is being poured out on the people at that time, the Bible says, yet for all of this, they would not repent. They would not repent. It's a just destruction. But not only is it a just destruction... It is a sovereign destruction. A sovereign destruction. In other words, we can make no mistake that what is happening here is a discharging of the wrath of God, the just wrath of God on a sinful people. In chapter 11, it's really highlighted. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look over at chapter 11, verse 12. And all the cities of those kings and their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. In other words, what Joshua was doing here, and it's repeated four times at the end of this chapter, he was simply following what God had spoken through Moses. Back in chapter 10, verse 29 and 32, it was the Lord who gave these lands into the hands of Israel. I'm telling you, this was a sovereign destruction. Perhaps you remember when I was reading chapter 11 that I skipped over reading verse 20 because I want to highlight it for you. I want your eyes to see this in chapter 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. The hard-hearted rebellion of these sinful people is confirmed by the Lord. Now, you might be thinking immediately, this sounds very similar to what God did to the Pharaoh of Egypt when God hardened his heart. Here, Yahweh hardens the heart of these hard-hearted rebels so that they would not receive His mercy, but rather His wrath. And we just sit in stunned silence as we read chapter 11, verse 20. God, who had patiently waited 400 years, has now turned the people over to their rebellion. It's the exact same thing that Paul says God does in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, Paul speaks of God giving people over to their wickedness. That's exactly what God does here. 
those who have so long rebelled against the truth they know are now fixed in that state of rebellion and thus will suffer the sovereign justice of God's wrath. Friends, God fixes the hearts of these people in the state of hardness so that they would not receive mercy, but so that they would receive wrath. This is a sovereign destruction. God fixes their heart so that He would not give them mercy, so that they would not turn. He fixes them in this state of rebellion. You see the destruction of hard-hearted people? But I want to move secondly to the diligence of Joshua. The diligence of Joshua. This was the work of Yahweh, yet it was Joshua who carefully obeyed the word of Yahweh as God spoke through Moses. This is emphasized over and again, especially in chapter 11. The implication is that the word of Yahweh was recorded by Moses and Joshua faithfully obeyed the written word of God. But there's one verse. I think it may be the most important verse in the book of Joshua. In chapter 11, that verse comes to verse 18. I think it's the most important verse in the book of Joshua. And it reads this way. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now, I want to caution you against thinking that everything came easily for the people, for Joshua and the people of Israel. You have this fairly abbreviated account of the conquest, and it almost seems as if these things just happened within a few hours or just a few days, to say the least. But in reality, if we compare the text here, it seems like about seven years of time is laid up within these chapters. It wasn't easy. I tried to highlight that before when we saw in chapter 11 this massive army, this powerful army. And not only that, they were filled with terrifying giants. It just wasn't getting easier. For seven years, this continued. And you would think that because they were in the land that God promised them that it would just be easy, that they would just be blessed and highly favored, that they would be living their best life now, that they'd be naming and claiming it. But that's not what happened. So I said, sometimes we want to see all of the pizzazz and all of the spectacular and all the miraculous. And then when it gets down into the details of these things, the day in and day out battle that Joshua had with these kings, we kind of get bored with it. Eh, not so much. But what I see here is the diligent endurance, the diligent obedience of Joshua just to stick with the stuff. To know that God had promised this land. And just because God had promised it was not going to make it easy. He still had the battle. Joshua just continued on in enduring diligence. And carefully obeyed what God had spoken. We see the destruction of the hard hearted. And the diligence of Joshua. Now just to make sure we get the point. The writer of this book includes chapter 12, which really is just a review of the conquest of Canaan. There's a total of 33 kings here mentioned. Two of those kings were the ones beyond the Jordan that Moses conquered, Sihon and Og. 
31 of them from verse 7 of chapter 12 until verse 24 of chapter 12 were those defeated by Joshua and the army of Israel. I point this out to tell you this. You always have to remember the context of the book of Joshua. In fact, you have to remember the context of every book of the Bible. Joshua, these things are not recorded in the book of Joshua just for the sake of recording history. These things are recorded because Joshua is going somewhere. The writer of the book is going somewhere. And I'll tell you where he's going. He's going to chapter 24. Everything in the book of Joshua is pointing to chapter 24 in which Joshua reminds the people of all that God had done. Both the miraculous and the mundane. All that God had done, both the miraculous and mundane, and the writer of Hebrews, or the writer of Joshua says, you remember all that God had done? Remember when I said he pointed out that they rolled the stones over the cave and they're there to this day. You can see those very stones and how that would bring to mind what God had done in defeating those five kings. Joshua is moving somewhere telling the people of all that God had done, both the miraculous and the mundane, and he's saying this, given all that God has done, choose you this day whom you will serve. You're going to go and follow the gods of this people whom God had had systematically destroyed from before you, both miraculously and through the mundane? Or are you going to serve the one true God? That's where God's going. That's the point of the book of Joshua. It's calling us today. Whom will you serve? Whom will you serve? We've noted two very important features of this narrative as it unfolds. The destruction of hard-hearted people and the diligence of Joshua. But I don't want to leave today without applying this text in a very personal and I hope very powerful way. Let me make three points of application. First, there is a warning to heed. A warning to heed. I hope that you will take a clear warning from this text today. Everybody. Hope that everybody takes a clear warning. I hope you were very, very uncomfortable as we were talking about the destruction of hard-hearted people. The just and sovereign destruction. Because what we have here is a warning to not ignore the truth that you know. What we have here is a warning to not ignore the truth that you have heard. Because when you ignore truth, God may very well fix you in that state. God may very well fix you in that state. God may very well fix your heart in a position of hard-hearted rebellion because hard-heartedness breeds only what? Hard-heartedness. It never breeds humility. It never breeds humility. It always breeds more hard-heartedness. And when you ignore truth, God may fix your heart in that way. 
And the reality is that he may use that very statement I just made to fix your heart in hard-hearted rebellion. Because some of you go, how dare he? What makes God think, which is just totally stupid to say, how could we ever say what makes God think he has any, God can do whatever God wants to do because he's God. That's the prerogative of being God. But some of you say, well, what right does God have to do that? And he may use that very truth, the very reality that God fixes people's heart in their hard-hearted rebellion. He may use that truth to fix you in your state of hard-hearted rebellion. Some of you hear that as an excuse. Well, because God does that, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. If God wants to save me, He can save me, right? You, you, you try to excuse what God says. I think we ought to take this as a very serious warning to heed. And I think it's interesting that the writer of the sermon to the Hebrews certainly took it that way. That's what the book of Hebrews is. It's a sermon. He's preaching a sermon and he is warning them against one thing. What is he warning them against? He is warning them against hard-hearted rebellion. He is warning them against not paying attention. He is warning them about not hardening their heart. And some of you may harden your heart this morning by ignoring your need for a Savior. You know you need a Savior. I know you need a Savior. You know you're a sinner. I know you're a sinner. Everybody knows you're a sinner. Everybody knows I'm a sinner. You could reject or ignore the truth. You could continue in hard-heartedness by ignoring your need for a Savior. You could be turning from your need for a Savior this morning by embracing your rebellion. And the response to that would be, don't do that. Stop it. It's deadly. And you have this as a reminder to you of how deadly hard-hearted rebellion could be. To which we're all saying, I want to flee that, right? I don't Make me humble, dear Lord. Don't fix my heart. And what the writer of Hebrews says is this. You need to understand, don't ignore these truths because you have a great high priest who can sympathize with your weakness. And he can so sympathize with your weakness that when you come to him and ask him, he will give you mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's what you have. Don't ignore your need of a Savior. Don't ignore the the, the reality of your own rebellion. Turn from it. So there's a warning to heed. Secondly, I think there's an example to follow. Remember I told you that Joshua 11.18 may in fact be the most important verse in the book of Joshua. Because maybe there are some of you here today who are just discouraged, if I can put it this way, just discouraged at the length of the battle. I've been a Christian for blank amount of years and I'm still fighting this battle. And you're discouraged. You say, why am I not more spiritually mature than I was, than I am now? Why? And you just need to remember, look, God never promised it'd be easy, but He did promise. Amen? God never promised that it'd be easy, but He did promise. He promised and He is determined to deliver Everyone who trusts in Him. He didn't say it'd be easy. 
So you're discouraged because you're fighting the battle and it's taking a long time and you're not further along to where you think you ought to be? Look, remember Joshua eleven eighteen. He fought, though he waged war a long time. You got a long time to wage war. But God did promise. God did promise. And he has also promised and he is determined to destroy everyone who does not trust him. So keep trusting him. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Keep fighting. What, what does that mean? Just, just the mundane, right? It's always easy when we're, when we're involved in the miraculous. But it's those mundane things that just, man, eat at you day after day after day. I've got to obey the Lord here and obey the... It's not in vain. It's not in vain. There's a warning to heed. There's an example to follow. And let me finish by saying this. There is a rest to seek. A rest to seek. At the end of Joshua chapter 11, we read, And the land had rest from war. But the writer of Hebrews says, But the rest that Joshua brought the people in was not the ultimate rest that God has intended for His people. He says there remains a rest. And that rest is that that rest is a rest in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has conquered and defeated sin and death in your place. And so there's a rest to seek. For some of you, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never repented of your sin and believed on Him as the one who took your sin on himself and paid the price on the cross when he suffered and bled and died and was buried and three days later he rose again. Some of you have never believed that and today there is a rest to seek. It's a reminder to you that there's a greater Joshua and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got to trust him. You've got to repent of your sin and believe on him today. There's a rest to seek. But maybe, maybe there are those of you who, are, who are, you say, I am a believer in Christ. I've been a believer in Christ for 20 years. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us that there is a day coming. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace, when He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. What a glorious day that will be. Do not lose heart, brothers and sisters. God never promised it is easy, but He has promised. And He will most surely deliver every one of us who've trusted in Him so that in one day we will all be gathered round that great throne singing of His amazing grace forever. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for this reminder. I pray that we would be heeding warnings, following examples, and seeking this rest as you keep us following you all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and together all God's people said, amen. Would you stand together and sing?